This morning in the Doctrine of God class, we are covering the doctrines of immutability and, if there's time, impassibility. And that phrase, and if there's time, is a significant one. (laughs) As I was preparing this week, I thought to myself, maybe I should just split this into two weeks and only do immutability this morning. So heavy emphasis on immutability this morning, because I think if we get that clear uh, and see how that's biblical, really, impassibility is just immutability applied. So I'll say more about that in a moment. And if those words are new to you, you're in the right place, not the wrong place. So you might think that you have to know all this stuff before you walk in, but that's not the case. The whole point of the class is that we learn stuff together. So if you've never heard the word impassibility, like the 12 people I talked to this week, literally people were like, what are you teaching on? And I said, immutability and impassibility. They said, impassibility, what's that? So you're in the right spot. Uh, This is an old way of speaking. It's not a way that we talk much more uh, today, but it is important. And I do think it can be defined and understood and we'll do the best we can. The main thing we want to spend our time talking about today is immutability, which is the doctrine that God does not change. You can get that from the word immutable. The prefix M means not. Mutable means changing. So he doesn't change. Okay, immutable. He's immutable. Impassable has to do with God not being passive or acted upon in such a way that he's overcome and changed. So you can see how immutability and impassibility are tightly connected together. One is an application of the other. I hope to show you, just like I prayed, that this is not just theoretical, it's imminently practical. So I built into my big idea at that very point. If you look at the main idea on the top of your handout, because God, God does not and cannot change in any way, take comfort from his promises, and have confident hope in his salvation. We're just going to look at those two points in two steps. On the handout, God does not and cannot change in any way, point one. So we'll see that in the scriptures. And then take comfort from his promises and have confident hope in his salvation. Why do it that way? Because there's all these Bible verses that connect God's changelessness to our salvation. And I just thought we better look at them together because the Bible thinks we should. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going. And then you'll notice I'm doing a little bit of extra work this week because this is so hard to grapple with in our thinking, that I thought, if you hear all this stuff about God not changing, not being able to change, two questions are going to occur to you at some point while we're talking. You're going to say, wait a minute, if God doesn't change, how can he do anything? And that's question three, or number three, does God change in creating or saving the world? And then you're also going to say, what about all those passages where God seems to change his mind or relents from his works or regrets something that he's done? And that's point number four on your handout. Does that make sense? So that's why I did it that way. Um, A quick note about the people on the back. I don't agree with all of these people on everything they've ever said. And I don't think you will either. But on this subject, we do agree. And I tried to put just over the course of the last couple hundred years, couple thousand years, a couple of folks from various places. It's very much cherry-picked. But it's them theologians in different eras of the church saying the same sorts of things we're going to talk about this morning. So specific to this subject. So some of them uh, are paedo-baptists and Presbyterians, and I disagree with them on that. But on the subject of God changing, I agree with them. And I think you're just going to find when you read people in the past that that's the case. There's some things they're really good on. I have three categories, good, bad, and weird. There's some things they're really good on. There's some things they're really bad on. And then there's some stuff that's just weird and I don't understand it. I, I, uh, I invite you to use those categories as well. Uh, okay. Well, we better get moving. So point number one, God does not and cannot change in any way. God does not and cannot change in any way. Let's see if we can find that in the scriptures. Number, numbers 23. Whoever's got that. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now it's short, so read it again for a sec. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Pause right there. So first off, we're distinguishing, something we've done a lot in this class if you haven't been here, is look at what it means for God to be creator, and for us to be created, or creatures. So we're distinguishing already in the verse, God as creator of everything and people whom he's created. 
And then it tells you something that's true because that's true. Keep going, Zach. God is not a man that he should change his mind. Yeah, or that he should lie. So people, they lie. If you've hung out with any of them long enough to know, you know this is true. People tell you lies. They don't always tell you the truth. Sometimes they tell you a lie and say it's the truth. I had a fun conversation this week with my three-year-old about what propaganda is. (laughs) Feel free to judge me. I think I probably introduced the idea too early. (laughs) But she was reading a children's book that was telling her lies and saying it was the truth. And I said, we're not going to read that one yet. It's propaganda. One day, we'll read books like that. It's fine to read bad books. It's fine to read books that that lie to you and tell you it's the truth. But as a three-year-old, you don't have discernment for such things. So we'll introduce that later. We took that one back to the library. Anyway, my point is people lie to you. They also change their mind. They tell you one thing and then they do another. They do one thing and then do something that's different, inconsistent with the thing they've just done. This is just part of being a person, a human person, a creature, a man. God is not like that, though. Numbers 23 says God doesn't lie. In fact, he can't lie. And he doesn't change his mind, according to Numbers 23. And then what it ties that to is that he says something and accomplishes it. God's unchangeableness in his determinations, his will, his thinking, in his plans. The fact that his plans don't change means he always accomplishes them. Every time. He never fails to get what he wants. It's part of being God. He also tells you certain things, or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And he makes good on his word every time, unlike people. Okay? Because God doesn't change, he accomplishes his purposes, and he does what he says he's going to do. Every time, without fail. That's Numbers 23. Psalm 102. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just listen. Psalm 102. Whoever's got that one, go ahead. Okay, now notice, same contrast, God and everything that's created. Did you hear it? Read it again, Lyle. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like clothing and they pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The stuff that's made is like clothing, the psalmist says. It wears out. I don't know about you, I've got a lot of dress shirts like this, and I've had to have a lot more over the years because I wear holes into the sleeves. Not so with God. That's part of being a created thing. It wears out. Not so with the Creator. He's being contrasted with what He's made. So, they will perish, but you will remain or endure, depending on which translation you're reading. Notice also in verse 26, it says God changes them like a robe and they pass away. It's interesting. But you are the same and your years have no end. So not only is he unchanging, he's eternal, which we've already looked at in this class. So we're focusing on unchanging this morning. Interestingly enough, Psalm 102 gets picked up in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, or 11 and 12. And it's said of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says of God the Son, of Jesus, what Psalm 102 says. Because Jesus is God, and as God, he doesn't change. Creation perishes, wears out, changes like a robe, but God remains. He brings about change in other things, but in him there's no change. This is a teaching not only of the Old Testament, but also of the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Read it again. Every 
good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, notice again, James 1, that was 17, if you're looking at it. God is the giver of all good gifts. He himself receives nothing. He only gives. He's the father of lights, which means he creates all the lights. And everything good comes down from him. And one thing that James connects that to is that there's no shadow in God. No variation or shadow due to change. You're familiar with the concept of a shadow. Even the kids in the room get this. You make up little games about like what shapes you can make in the shadows. I still do it, even as a grown man. Like you can make a little puppy, you know, one of these. You ever done that one? Okay, y'all know. Shadows of all things change. Like the whole point of the game is that you can make them change. It looks like they're talking or barking or whatever. There's not even a shadow in God. Like the slightest degree or unit of change, a shadow, doesn't exist in God. No variation or shadow due to change. And that's connected for James with him giving good things. Isn't that interesting? That God the creator gives to his creation. The creation receives. And in some sense we give too, but not like God. God alone gives every good gift. And in him there's no shadow or variation due to change. Okay, I'm trying to show you that God, according to the Bible, doesn't and can't change in any way. Notice there's no qualifications on any of those three verses. We can look at other places too, but just for the sake of time, trying to make it manageable. There's no qualification. It's not like God doesn't change in this way, but in this way he does. That's not what they say. They just say he doesn't change. Whether it's Moses in Numbers, the psalmist in Psalm 102, or James in James 1. They're all saying the same thing. God does not and cannot change in any way. Some of you are already wondering about the stuff at the bottom of the handout. That's good. That's where we're going. Um, any questions at this point? Mike. I'm more just wondering if you could talk on this where says that God doesn't change, and so when it says that God gives us good gifts out of his abundance, yeah. sort of that assumes that God's giving out of his just infinite nature. Yep. And so, um, yeah, God does not change, and so he's, he's giving out of his infiniteness. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, we looked at Romans eleven thirty six uh, a couple weeks ago when I was here teaching this class, that everything is from God and through God and to God, that nobody gives him anything as if he should repay it, but he gives everything. I think that kind of asymmetry, where God is not given to, but he does give, like that's kind of what we're trying to put our finger on. Now, why is that the case? Well, for James, part of it is his changelessness, his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. How can he give stuff? How can he only give and not receive? Well, it's because he doesn't change. Why is that? Well, think for a minute. Just think for a minute. Why are those two things connected together? The infiniteness of God. The fact that he can give and not receive, and his changelessness. What does a change mean for God? To remove something from you. Or, or to add something. Yeah. So if God is perfect, as the Bible says he is, then for him to change would be to what? Become less perfect? More perfect? The words don't even make any sense, right? You can't become less perfect or more perfect. That's the definition of perfect, right? <laughs> So if God were to change for the better, he wouldn't have been God to begin with. And if he were to change for the worse, he would stop being God. This is why I think the giving and receiving language is important. You can't give to God such that he might repay you. You could put him in your debt. That's not the case. He doesn't need anything outside himself. We're going to look at this next week when we look at independence. But they're very closely tied together. 
Okay, keep just, I know you're thinking through things. Keep doing that. We're going to try and drag that out. Look at what else the Bible connects God's changelessness to. It's not just creation. So there's a contrast from creation in these first three places that we've looked at in Scripture. The creation changes and the Creator doesn't. It's also tied to salvation. This is point number two. We ought to recognize that God doesn't and can't change. And because of that, we should take comfort in his promises and have confident hope in his salvation. Listen to Malachi 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. All right, say it again, Tori. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What's the therefore, therefore? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not consumed. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. Therefore. Zach? It's to connect the two ideas, meaning that the reason that the children of Israel are not consumed rests completely upon the fact that God does not change. Yep, I think that's exactly right. How can we know we're going to be saved, or how can Israel know they're going to be saved? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, because, on the basis of God's changelessness, you won't be consumed, O Jacob. Right? So in the Bible, changelessness and salvation are linked together. We're just going to keep seeing that. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by him to swear, he swore by himself. Pause right there. Notice there's no one greater than God. This has to do with that concept of perfection I was talking about earlier. Keep going. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes and oaths is final for confirmation. There's a kind of dilemma here. Now the author realizes he's not saying it like this. But it's like, you got to swear on something greater than yourself. So how could God ever swear? <laughs> right? Like that's the dilemma. Well, he must swear on himself. There's no one greater than him. Right? Keep going. So when God desired to show more, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, right there. Unchangeable character of his purpose. So maybe you came in thinking, well, sure, God in his being doesn't change, but his purposes change. Not according to Hebrews 6. Keep going. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast Look at verse 18, if you're looking at it, so that if you're not, I'll say it so that by two unchangeable things, Laura, what are the two unchangeable things? God's unchangeableness and uh, his unchangeable purpose. Exactly. It's God himself and all of his purposes. His purposes are being tied to his promises. He's promising something to Abraham. He needs to swear on something greater than himself. There's nothing greater than himself, so he'll swear on himself. Two unchangeable things, God and his purposes. Keep going. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that anchors into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does he do with it? When he's established that God doesn't change and his purposes don't change, he tells you to what? Have... Yes. Hope. Have hope. Why can you have hope? Because God doesn't change and his purposes don't change. That's biblical logic. God's changelessness is the ground for our confident hope in his salvation. How can we know that he will do what he says? How can we know that we'll be saved by the blood of Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus, by the life of Jesus? It's because God doesn't change. He has sworn it. Will he not do it? The psalmist says. Okay, same connection, same logic. God's changelessness, confidence in your salvation in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
How can somebody hold their priesthood permanently? You can't say that of any of the other priests except for Jesus. He lives forever and he continues forever. He doesn't change. Lexi's right. And it's tied to what a priest does. What does a priest do? He intercedes for the people. Who said that? That's exactly right. He intercedes for the people on behalf of them because of their sin. He's applying the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, through the sacrifice. Because he continues forever, he's able to save. And that's where Hebrews 7 verse 25 goes. Consequently, it's because of all that, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's interesting, that is said about post-incarnation Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. So God's changelessness is connected to God's salvation. Why can we have comfort from his promises? He's told us something, and he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his word. He's going to keep his word. We can trust it because he doesn't change and his purposes don't change. God's changelessness is the ground for our confidence and our hope in salvation. How can we know that we're going to be saved? Because he doesn't change and the way of salvation hasn't changed. It's not like people have gotten in through Jesus so far, but in a couple hundred years, no. So I just want you to see how the Bible uses this immutability, changelessness of God in its own logic. It's contrasted from creation. Creation changes. God doesn't. And it's the ground for hope in salvation, for confidence in God's promises, for comfort from everything that God says to you. You know that he's not lying to you. That he's not got two fingers crossed behind his back. Sure, I'll give you everything you need, but no, that's not how God is. Unchangeable character. All right. Any questions so far? Micah. That's the problem with saying that, isn't it? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think it certainly gives hope. I think another way you could feel this maybe wrongly mm. would be on, like, this, it just feels deterministic, right? Mm. It feels like God is this, like, mechanistic, fatalistic deity who doesn't change. It's kind of, like, chunking along. Mm. Why does it matter what I do if mm. that doesn't have any effect on who God is or what he does or how he relates to me? Yep. Good. That's great. That's a great, great, great point. No, I was not going to go there, so we'll go there now. Um, okay, Ben, God doesn't change, and God's purposes don't change. Uh, then why does it matter what I do? That's a good question. Maybe you were wondering that. Anybody wondering that besides Micah? Okay, great. Good. Cool. And a couple other nods. Some people too shy to raise their hand. But you are not alone. Um, okay, a couple of things. One, that's not the logic of the Bible. And I do think we just, we just want to say that. Like, in the Bible, God is sovereign, and that motivates his people's action. It doesn't sort of cut it off at the knees. It's not like God is sovereign, so I'll just go over here and sit on my hands and wait for him to do the thing. My favorite uh, illustration, biblical illustration for this, is the book of Joshua. The Israelites are going into Canaan, the land that God has promised to them. And you notice, like, we have the whole book of Joshua, 24 chapters, because it's the record of their conquest of the land of Canaan. Like, they actually went into the land and took the land. Now, I think based on Micah's question, what about fate? What, what about, like, if God is so sovereign that he's going to accomplish his purposes and he doesn't change, then why does it matter what we do? They didn't say that in the book of Joshua. They didn't just sit on their hands and wait. If that logic were the case, they could have. Like, if it were the case, God is going to do it, so let's just sit and wait for him. Then there would be no book of Joshua. But instead, what happens in the Bible, biblical logic, is God says the land is yours, and the people charge into the land and take it. 
That's how it works. It's interesting, isn't it? They move into battle knowing that they're going to win because God has told them, you will get the land. So God's sovereignty actually motivates human action. God's sovereignty actually is the ground of human responsibility. He keeps people accountable to do what he says. I think the reason the question gets set up as a problem is because we think, kind of instinctively we think, God's action and our action are on the same level. And if God wants to do a thing and I don't want to do a thing, then I have to win. That's also not the way it works. Right? There is kind of a, a two aspects, but in different senses of this. You don't get rid of one and end up in fate. It doesn't matter what I do. Right? But you don't also relativize them and make God's sovereignty not actually sovereignty. Does that make sense? Um, this is called compatibilism. If anybody just wants to look it up later, uh, good systematic theology of somebody you trust on your shelf has a, has a section on compatibilism that answers this question. It very much matters what we do. The Bible's shot through with do this, don't do that for good reason. God will judge us on the basis of our actions, our desires, our thoughts. We should mortify sin and pursue holiness. We should actually believe in the Lord Jesus so that we can have forgiveness of sins. If we don't do that, we won't have forgiveness of sins. There's a Bible verse in there that says, you don't have because you don't ask. God actually wants to be prayed to. That's how I would start to try and engage that question. We could have a whole class on that. So if you're unsatisfied, I'm happy to talk more afterwards. Follow-ups? Yeah. Not a follow-up, just a new question. Is that a follow-up on that? Yeah, a little bit. So well, I'm actually talking to her. So sorry, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right. Tell me your name. Hannah. Yeah. Um, it, what you just said, it's like, well, you know, God said there's a land taken, and the Israelites didn't just stay and then let God do what he said he's already going to accomplish, but it's also the that God told them to do something. Yes. So regardless if they think God's going to, well, he's already going to do it. He commanded them to do something, so they need to do it. Right. And so much... Well, I would say obeying God always requires faith. Or, sorry, well, that's what I meant. Yeah. To just sit there and then sit on their hands would, would not require faith. Right, yeah, I agree. And, and so much in the Bible, God is accomplishing his purposes through human people doing things, right? So you, Joshua is a good example, to your point, right? God says, the land is yours, take it. And the way that they get the land is by taking it. That's God accomplishing his purposes. Think about Isaiah 10, fascinating chapter. Like, you know the little emoji that has the head exploding? That's Isaiah 10. In Isaiah 10, Israel has been uh, disobedient. They've broken the covenant, and they're going to be exiled from the land. Because God told them, if you don't walk according to my ways, you're not going to live in my land. God raises up another nation, Assyria, to judge Israel. In Isaiah 10, it says they're going to be the rod of his judgment. So God raises up Assyria, and they judge Israel and exile them from the land. And then God judges Assyria. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. They were doing what you told them to do. But they wanted to do it. They were evil in their hearts. They didn't want to do it because they love God. They wanted to do it because they hate Israel. They love themselves. And so God judges that, the motive of their heart. Right? That's a fascinating little compatibilism passage, isn't it? So that people can be used by God to do a thing and have evil intentions in the doing of it, even while God's intentions are totally pure. You think about Genesis 50, where Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He gets falsely accused of sexual immorality. He goes into prison and is forgotten about for like seven years, a long period of time. And then at the end of the whole story, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, 20. That's compatibilism. Now, he doesn't say what you meant for evil, God used for good. And you shouldn't make it mean that. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The same actions, two different intentions. God's, pure and righteous, and people's, evil and sinful. The same things take place. Two different actions, two, or two different intentions in the same action. That's compatibilism. I don't know how else to explain it. Mind-bending as it might be, I think it's true. But this is not a class on compatibilism. That will come up later in the Doctrine of God class. We're going to consider a whole week on power and sovereignty. 
So these questions will be a great place to try and throw at Chris Dish, who's <laughs> teaching that class. For now, I think we better move on. Um, I do think it raises the next question on the handout pretty well, though. So number three, does God change in creating or saving the world? Maybe you're, up, you're sitting there and you're listening and you're thinking, okay, say God doesn't change. Does that make him inert? Or maybe you don't use that word. Does that make him immobile? If he doesn't change, can he act? A God who doesn't change in any way and can't change in any way, how could he do anything? Like I'm reading the Bible and all over there's God doing stuff. What do you mean he doesn't change? That's the next question I want to try and tackle. And I think that's a version of Micah's question, maybe the other side of Micah's question. So we talked about the human action side. Let's talk about the divine action side. So does God do anything? Amen. Praise the Lord that he does. He makes a world. The world turns from him in sin. He saves the world. He sends Jesus to become a man. Jesus lives, dies, and rises from the dead, ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to fill his people until he sends his son back for them. Yeah, God does all sorts of stuff. Praise the Lord. So how do we understand that? What do you mean? Like God can't change, but he does act. Jocelyn? Would it be true to say that everything that God does is not changing him in any way? It's manifestations of his nature. That's a great way to put it. Putting on display who he is. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So at the highest level, we could just say... Uh, change and act are different things. No to this one, yes to this one. But that's not very satisfying. You came in here for more than that. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit more. I do think it's sufficient just to say that. Just make a distinction between changing and acting and say that God acts in a changeless way. How does that work? (laughs) I mean, we're talking about God, so it's going to be really hard to unpack and make sense of. We're certainly not going to comprehend the whole thing. You're never going to understand all the connections of what I just said. I do think it's true. I do think we can understand somewhat. So let's try to do that. I want to give you a toolkit, a toolkit for understanding divine action. And then we're going to try and apply this toolkit in the fourth section. Does God change his mind, relent from his works, or regret his ways? Looking at 1 Samuel 15 specifically. Okay. So if you want to turn somewhere in the Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 15. Turn to 1 Samuel 15. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the toolkit before we dig into this so that we can try to see how it's actually used. Okay, a toolkit for understanding God's relationship to the world or divine action in creation and salvation. Tool number one, theology. I don't know if this is counterintuitive to you, but theology helps you read the Bible. It really does. Where theology is the clear teaching of other parts of Scripture, we should bring it to bear on individual parts of Scripture. I've said in this class probably more than once, read every part of the Bible with all of the rest of the Bible. That's all I mean. So when you come to a passage where God is spoken of as changing his mind or regretting a thing that he did, there's lots of ways we just immediately and intuitively ought to know it can't mean that. Let me give you an example. So theology is the teaching about God. It's what this whole class is about. We know from the rest of Scripture that God knows everything. He never learns something. Okay? God has, the theologians would say, exhaustive foreknowledge of future events. You can write that down if you want the $10 way to say it. Exhaustive foreknowledge of future events. Before anything happens, God knows it's going to happen. And he doesn't take in information like we do. Despite what you may have heard, God actually doesn't look down the corridors of time to learn things. He just knows. Isaiah says he knows the end from the beginning. How is that? Because he decrees everything that happens. He actively knows everything that's going to take place in one intuitive act of being. 
So whatever we make of the regret passages, it can't be that God learned something. Whatever we make of where are you in the garden, it can't be he doesn't know where they are. It's got to be something else because he knows everything. Okay, I just think you should bring your theology to bear on every part of the scriptures because of the other clear teaching of scriptures. Praise the Lord. God has not given us one chapter or one verse. He's given us 66 books. There's a lot of stuff he wants us to know about himself. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful. I'm going to spend the rest of my life thinking about it. Praising this God. Praying to this God. Okay, the other thing you can do with theology, we're still on tool one. I have three. We're still on tool one. Foreknowledge is the first part of theology. God knows everything. He never takes in information as if he didn't know it before. The other thing is compatibilism. This is why I'm thankful Micah asked the question. God accomplishes his purposes often by using human people doing things and intending things. The way that this is said in theology is that God ordains the end, what he wants to accomplish, and the means to that end, how you're going to get there. So Bible verses like James chapter 4, which I referred to earlier, you don't have because you don't ask. God ordains that you would have a thing. And the way that you would get it is by asking him to give it to you. That's just one example. Okay? But God ordains both, that you would have the thing and that you would ask for it. Okay? That's compatibilism. God ordains the end, what he wants to accomplish, and the means to that end. Okay? So think about a passage like Exodus uh, 32, where Moses intercedes for the people of Israel and says, don't destroy them, even though they deserve it. That's my paraphrase. Don't destroy them, even though they deserve it. And then God doesn't destroy them. We could read that passage with compatibilism in mind, knowing it's the clear teaching of Genesis 50:22, Genesis 50:20, Isaiah 10, and other places, Acts 4. And we could say, God never intended to destroy them. And he always intended that Moses would intercede for them. And Moses is interceding for them is how God accomplishes the end of not destroying them. Okay? Foreknowledge, compatibilism. Also, you should distinguish between God's person and his works. Still in theology. This is kind of C. Point one, letter C. You should distinguish between God's person and his works. Another way of saying this is what's inside God and what's outside of God. Okay? Keep in mind the teaching of last week. And previous weeks where God is infinite, eternal, and immense. I'm using language to speak about an infinite creator. There are limitations, but we're doing the best we can. Inside of God and outside of God. The things God does in the world are outside of God. This is one way I think we can distinguish between change and act. If you look at the results or the consequences of what God does, that's the realm of change, creation, okay? Creation comes into existence. It gets saved from sin. That's the sense in which we can talk about change on this side, outside of God, not inside of God. So just distinguish those two things. That's theology. I will pause for questions after number three on the handout. Number two, sub-point two, Roman numeral three, Super confusing, I know. Uh, We should realize the way that Scripture speaks to us. I've said this a bunch in this class, but in case you weren't here, um, the theology words for this are accommodation, that God condescends to speak to us, his creatures. But a way to understand that popularly is just that God speaks of himself as if he's a creature because he's speaking to creatures. And he actually wants them to know true things about him. If you're thinking about it, you're realizing there's no other way God could speak. The only way God can speak to creatures is to creatures as if he's one of them so that they could understand him. You think about your relationship to anyone you've ever met. Your child, your parent, your coworker, your boss, your spouse. You only have human relationships in your experience to compare what God says about himself to. You just need to do it carefully because there's certain things that are true of that other person that aren't true of God. That's what we've been trying to look at in the last couple of weeks of this class. 
So God speaks of himself as if he's a creature because he's communicating truth about himself to creatures. But we should not assume that there is no difference between him and us. Bring that difference to bear on everything you see God say. You already do this. Because when you read a passage like in Numbers, where God's arm is not too short to save, you don't assume that there's an arm up there. You might not even assume that it's up there. So we already have this category. I'm just saying bring it to bear on more things consistently across all of your reading of the scriptures. You will intuitively recognize the difference between God and us the more you do it. You'll get better. It's like a muscle. You work it out, it gets stronger. Right? You read the Bible more and more and more and more, you'll get better at it. It's like a muscle. You work it out, it gets stronger. So God speaks of himself as if he's a creature because he's communicating truth about himself to creatures. But we should not assume that there is no difference between him and us. Maybe you've heard somebody use the language of anthropomorphism. You ever heard that? Okay, actually, most of us have. Great. Anthropomorphism is a way of saying uh, humanly speaking or speaking about something as if it's a human. Okay? I have an example of this from this week. In God's providence, he gave me a wonderful illustration for anthropomorphism. I'm changing Phoebe's diaper, getting her ready for bed. Phoebe's my three-year-old. And we're sitting in a room, and her sound machine is on, and it's just her and me. And the sound machine, you know, is making, like, ocean waves or whatever. Uh, I guess it helps kids sleep. I don't know. Um, And it kind of, like, stops making that sound for a second and then starts again. And I didn't say anything about it, but Phoebe says to me, what happened to the sound machine? And I was not planning this. And I was not thinking about a lesson on immutability or anthropomorphism or anything like that. I just said, oh, it had a hiccup. You know how you have hiccups sometimes? The sound machine had a hiccup. Okay, now you know that sound machine did not have a hiccup. <laughs> At least not in the same sense that she does. A hiccup is like, as far as I understand the science, an air bubble that comes up from below, right? That sound machine has no air bubbles. Okay, but she knows what I meant, and I know what I meant, and I know what I didn't mean. There aren't any intestines in that thing over there. Okay. The Bible does that about God. Because the Bible is God speaking to us, his creatures, and he actually wants us to understand. We have our experience to draw from of hiccups, and then we apply hiccups to God, and we just need to know we don't mean a bunch of stuff that we mean when we say that about us. Same thing with the sound machine. Right? That's just an anthropomorphism. It's a way of speaking about the sound machine as if it's a man when it's not. Now, don't let this freak you out. I'm not saying that nothing is true when I say the sound machine hiccuped. Something is true. That's how the communication works, right? I'm just saying not everything is true. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when I talked about analogy, that's all this is. When we speak about God, we shouldn't assume that everything we're saying is the same, like he's got an arm or a nose or an eye. And we shouldn't assume that everything we're saying is different, like there's no meaningful truth we can convey. No overlap experientially between what we do and what he says. It's similar. It's analogous. It's like. And every like carries not like with it. That's what it means for it to be like. If it didn't, it would be same or different. But it's like. Make sense? Okay. Uh, Theology, analogy. And then uh, one way I think this is the third kind of tool in the toolkit uh, think about a post. A post. Like, I mean a post in the ground. It's wood, so it has these, this shading, I guess. And you're standing on the north side of the post. Here's you. Of course, you're a stick figure because I can't draw anything else. You're standing on the north side of the post. Let's say you move to the south side of the post. Here's you now. This is one way I've used in the past, I've been taught in the past, Uh, to understand our relationship to God that I think is helpful. You notice in this illustration there are three relevant details for conveying what we're talking about. There's the post, there's the you, and there's the relationship between the post and the you. Okay? Now, as you notice, when you move from the north side of the post to the south side of the post, two things changed and one didn't. Tell me which one didn't change. The post didn't change at all. What did change? You changed. 
and your relationship to the post changed. You see that? I think similarly, I know there are limitations to this illustration, but I think similarly, we can understand God's relationship to the world. One pastor friend of mine said recently in a sermon, I think he's right, that change is the language of creatures. Change is the language of creatures. That's a good summary for this whole morning. You'd write that under number three. Change is the language of creatures. That doesn't mean that God is immobile, unable to do anything. That would just be a silly conclusion. It doesn't follow. Here's a way of explaining that. The creature changes. The creature's relationship to the creator changes. The creator never changes. Okay, so there's theology, analogy, and a post. You're dealing with God, the world, and his relationship to the world. God never changes. The world always changes. And God's relationship to the world sometimes changes by grace. You could apply this. This is us under God's wrath. This is us under God's grace. He never changes. We always do. And sometimes, by God's grace, our relationship to him changes too. So just imagine an all-powerful post that picks you up from the north side and puts you on the south side. That's God saving you. All right. Um, any questions about that before we dig into 1 Samuel 15? Just a quick question. So those are the three toolkits to understand God's divine action in the world. Is that yes. Yeah. I'm trying to answer number three. Does God change in creating or saving the world? If God can't change, how can he do stuff? And I started off saying he doesn't change and he does do stuff. Here's how we can try to make a little bit more sense of that. We're kind of pressing into what's mysterious to us and trying to say as much as we can say from the scriptures. And then we're just going to have to stop and not be able to say much more. Laura? Um, I think this gets to the, the difference between God's person and his works. But um, how, how can we say about God he is, for example, the two I thought of are he is creator and he is merciful or he is mercy. Mm-hmm. How can we say those things about him knowing that before creation existed, like how how was he creator before creation, creation existed? How could he be mercy when there's no need for mercy? Yep. And therefore, I mean, I know he didn't change, but it seems like he did almost then. Sure. Can you explain that? Great. Yep. That's, that's the most sophisticated 400 level version of the question on the handout, which is 100 level. Um, Okay, here's the answer. The answer is that God is eternally the creator in the sense that he is acting from eternity in such a way that there's a temporal effect. He creates in one eternal act of his being such that at some point in time, time exists. Now just think about what I just said. At some point in time, time exists. That doesn't work. Like our language breaks down. Time is a created thing. There is no time before time. Think about that for a second. There is no time before time. Time is a created thing. So there's no becoming. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you can do the same thing here, right? You're right. It appears to us as if there's a change. And I would just want to say that change is on our side, right? Mysterious and challenging as that may be. We got to land the plane in 1 Samuel 15. Let's hear verses 10 and 11. Whoever has that. So God regrets that he makes Saul king, verses 10 and 11. Keep going. Verse 28. I'm skipping around for time. You could read the whole chapter later if you want to. (laughs) So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Okay, now he doesn't change his mind or lie. In the ESV, which translation are you reading? Um, NASV. Great. In the ESV, it represents the Hebrew very well. 
In verse 10, God regrets that he makes Saul king. In verse 29, God does not regret. It's the same word. And you can learn Hebrew if you want to. It's the same word. There's not, well, in this one it means this, and in this one it means another thing. Mm -mm. Same word. He regrets. He doesn't regret. Verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then he regrets again. Okay, so he regrets. He doesn't regret. He regrets. All right. I heard Kevin DeYoung say this this week, and I think it's helpful. One important principle for reading your Bible is that the biblical author is not stupid. Okay. So you can, if you want to, posit, oh, he just contradicted himself in the span of ten verses. I would think there's a better way of understanding that. Whoever wrote this knows that he wrote both of those things in the span of ten verses. And he's not an idiot. So there must be something else going on here. Applying all the tools we just talked about, I want to say there's a sense in which both are true, but they're different senses. Okay, if you'll flip over to the back of your handout, I'm going to just read two quotes that I think are helpful. In the middle of your page, Francis Turretin, and then the next one after that. So Francis Turretin said about a passage like this one, repentance, or regret we could say, is attributed to God after the manner of men. He's speaking as if he's a man but must be understood after the manner of God. Not with respect to his counsel, which doesn't change, but to the event. Not in reference to his will, which doesn't change, but to the thing willed. Not to affection and internal grief, but to the effect and external work. But he does what a penitent, because he does what a penitent man usually does. A new thing. Wilhelm Sabrakel, the next quote. Whenever human limbs, hands, eyes, and a mouth are attributed to God, such human terminology occurs in order that we insignificant human beings may comprehend the operations of God by comparing them to the manner in which we use limbs, etc. Whenever anger, love, and similar passions are attributed to God, we must have the consequences and results in view, such as occurs when we have similar passions. Notice what they're both doing. They're saying there's some similarity here. Because when you use a word like regret of you, you turn from doing that thing and do a new thing. That's the sense in which there's overlap. When you use a word like regret in you, you also mean, I know because I've done this, I did a bad thing and I feel bad about that thing. And you just realize, if that's what you mean by regret, you can't say that of God. He doesn't do bad things. He doesn't feel bad for the bad things he does. He doesn't do bad things. You see how there's similarity and dissimilarity, and we just need to hold on to both. And that's why I think the passage uses both. He regrets in one sense, but in another sense, you should never say he regrets. That's just verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15 and verse 29 of 1 Samuel 15. I think that's the way to understand it. I have to pray, both because it's a good thing to do and because we're out of time. But I will stick around if you have any questions. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Would you help us to understand you as we ought to, according to your word? Help us not just to know more things, but to live more faithfully in response to who you are, what you've done, and what you've said to us in your word. Would you give us grace that we might think over these things, and would you give us understanding in our thinking? May you be pleased in our worship this morning as we gather as a church to sing your praises, to pray and ask for your help, and to hear instruction from your word as we go out from this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.